The scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, which are on page 832, or you may read along on the screen. In those days, a decree went from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Well, let's pray as we begin. Faithful God, you chose Mary, full of grace, to be the mother of our sovereign and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now fill us with your grace, that with her we may understand your ways, rejoice in your salvation, and embrace your will. Through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We've been journeying in this Advent season with Mary, the mother of Jesus, from the Annunciation to the Visitation to the Magnificat. Instead of relegating Mary to a simple carrier of the Christ child, we've lifted her up as a model, a model of what it means to respond to God, a model of faith, a model of obedience through her Magnificat song. And today, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, we're going to lift Mary up as a model of faith journey, of journeying in faith, as we look at Mary and Joseph and their journey to Bethlehem. And as I said at the beginning of this series, we study Mary for a specific reason. It's because she always leads us to Jesus. That's why we study Mary. She leads us to Jesus better than anyone else in all of Scripture. That's what she does. Friends, do you realize that Mary was the very first person to journey with Jesus? And in doing so, she becomes a model for what it might mean for us to commit to journeying with Jesus. And that's why we need to pay close attention to this text. Journeying with Jesus is why we're here. It's why the church exists. It's why I get up every morning. That's our mission statement, really. Flourishing together in Jesus Christ. You see that, you read that here at this church. Flourishing is active. It is a journey that we choose to go on in Christ. And it's my deepest desire for myself and for each and every one of you that our lives might be a journey with Jesus. A journey with Jesus. What does it mean to journey with Jesus? Here's my definition. Remaining intimately close to Jesus as we go through all of life. Remaining intimately close with Jesus as we travel through all of life. For us, that means practicing presence with him 
It means staying in constant communication with him. It means being mindful of him in every decision that we make. Mary was the first person to model this for us because she held Jesus as close as you possibly can, right? She held him intimately in her womb along this journey. Our text is is fairly brief. It talks about the decree that's gone out that, that they had to travel to Bethlehem and then it says, they went to be regist- he, uh, Joseph went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and she was expecting a child. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to deliver her child. If we're going to learn from Mary and her journey, part of what we need to do this morning is actually paint a realistic picture of what this journey to Bethlehem would have been like. Now, I know that you already have some visuals in your mind. If you've ever walked in a church before, if you've engaged with Christmas time, you already have a visual of this journey in your mind. You're thinking of, of movies and, and Christmas pageants and Christmas cards and, and, and all of that, and maybe even some sort of sweet saccharine paintings, right, of what this journey was like. And we're going to feed into some of those visuals that you have in a couple days here when we do our live nativity, right? Uh, the journey to Bethlehem when we do our live nativity is going to be from the back door to about here, right? And that's okay. But I want to give you a realistic picture. I, I, I journeyed a, a leg of this trip from the Sea of Galilee to Bethlehem just a month ago with a group of people in Israel. So I can visualize it really well. You can walk this road today uh, if you want to. There are actually three roads that would go from Nazareth uh, up north in Galilee to Bethlehem. There was the most direct route which is not the one that you see here. It would have been just sort of straight south from Nazareth to Jerusalem and then, and then the six extra kilometers to Bethlehem. That's the most direct route, but it's uh, also called the Samaritan Road. And if you know anything about that, you know that Mary and Joseph would not have traveled on the Samaritan Road. The Samaritans were sort of half-Jews. They were ritualistically unclean. So this was not a place where Jews would have willingly traveled unless they really needed to. There was another road that actually went to the to the east of the Jordan River, up on those mountains, sort of a, a plateau up there that you could take. It's called the Transjordan Road. And they could have taken that one, but that was the least direct route. It would have been a lot longer. So most scholars believe that they took the middle road, which is what I've put on here for you, which travels along the length of the Jordan River down to the city of Jericho, down by the Dead Sea, and then up to Jerusalem, and then just a brief jaunt south to Bethlehem. So, just for a little bit of perspective, that's 90 miles, this road, which is about the distance of of us deciding to go and walk to Rockford today, if we wanted to do that. Most of the travelers would have gone about 20 miles a day. I think most scholars think that that's sort of the max that you would go. But remember that Mary is deep into her pregnancy at this point. So she would have needed to move a little bit slower. So scholars think that this trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have actually taken seven to ten days for Mary and Joseph. We have this visual that they were traveling along together, that Joseph is, is leading the donkey along and Mary's on the donkey. Um, but to be honest, they probably were not wealthy enough to have a donkey. The scripture doesn't tell us that she rode a donkey. Um, they were probably too poor to have a donkey for this, for this journey. And they probably weren't alone either. They most likely would have traveled in a caravan of people or multiple caravans of people. 
and it's, and it's very likely that Joseph and Mary weren't even together for big chunks of this journey because he would have traveled with the men and the women would have taken care of, of Mary as she was expecting the child in a larger caravan of maybe 30 to 50 people. The journey to Bethlehem was anything but romantic. The first leg of the trip was this sort of flatlands uh, along the Jordan River that were heavily wooded at certain points. And ancient uh, accounts tell us of, of the troubles that were there were boars and, and lions often on that road. The road was well-traveled and was a common route for bandits and robbers as well who were looking to take advantage of others. Then that, that trip up Jericho up north uh, or up the hill to Jerusalem is in the Judean wilderness. And it's still desert today, kind of high desert, where in the winter temperatures could be in the 90s and scorching during the day, but down in the 20s at night. Pretty tough conditions. Mary and Joseph would have lived off bread that they had packed before their journey began. Bread for breakfast, a little more bread for lunch, bread and maybe some oil for dinner. All in all, this trip was dangerous and harsh and probably kind of monotonous. Not romantic at all, especially when you're nine months pregnant. Also, we have this, this visual that's been given to us that Mary and Joseph are rushing to Bethlehem while the contractions are underway and they, and they barely find space and time, but the text doesn't tell us that. Actually, the text tells us that while they were already in Bethlehem, the time came for her to deliver a child. They had likely been settled in for a week or more in Bethlehem before those contractions started. This changes our no room in the inn narrative. The word translated as inn is actually kind of problematic here. We're not talking about a hotel. Bethlehem was, was just a little tiny hamlet. It would not have had a, a large inn in that town. The word actually means guest room in Greek, the word that's translated as, as inn. What likely happened was Mary and Joseph visited some uh, extended relatives in this hometown of Bethlehem but the guest room in their house, the inn, the guest room, was already taken because so many people had to come in for the census. But there was a more private room on the first level downstairs, hewn into the rock, that, would, that we would see as a stable, but really it was a warming house for the animals. This is a, a first century stable uh, that's actually been excavated. You can see what the size looks like there. This would have been a place where Mary might have chosen to go here for modesty's sake, right? As she's having this child, Jesus would have been placed in a stone basin, not unlike the one that you see here, that was hewn out of the wall, which was basically a food bowl for the animals. I share all of this with you, not to ruin your beloved uh, Christmas nativity sets, or to try and muddy up your Christmas traditions, or to ruin some of the great Christmas hymns for you, I'm not trying to be a deconstructionist, that's not my bent anyways, but we need an accurate view of this text because so often what we want to do is we want to rush to that picture-perfect place in Christmas, right? That moment of a, of a starry night with an open-air stable and a beautiful wooden manger. It wasn't wooden, folks. And, and, we, and we have this visual of scores of animals that, that came, and, 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 and this visual that we have isn't even historically accurate. And we gloss over the realities of this journey that it took to get to this dark, hot basement cave with maybe a donkey and a, and a stone feeding trough. 
These are the realities of Mary and Joseph's journey. And we need to pay attention to her. Because again, she is a model for us of what it means to journey with Jesus. What can we glean from this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem? What do we learn from the realities of this journey? I have three things for you. The first is this. There are no shortcuts on the journey with Jesus. There are no shortcuts. I pondered this week, first time I've ever pondered it in my life, that God miraculously planted a child in Mary's womb. Miracle of miracles, right? But he didn't miraculously teleport her to Bethlehem. You ever think about that? Of all the things that God could do, he didn't do that. No, that journey was very, very real. And, and this is particularly important for us to understand in this Advent season. We hear these themes of, of peace and joy and comfort, and, and we deeply want that for ourselves and for our loved ones, the people we care about. We want the wonder and the worship and the best of the season, but so many of us plow through the season at breakneck speed without experiencing what Christ really came for. In a season of joy and peace and comfort, why are these things so hard to find for us? And here's why I think, I think it's because we love shortcuts and we believe that they're available to us. If I can get the right gift, if I can create the right memories, if I can pull off the perfect family meal or the perfect Christmas card, then, then, then we will have this peaceful sort of manger, starry night moment together. Maybe I can earn my way there. Maybe I can pay my way there. Maybe I can work hard enough to get to that place. We are enamored by shortcuts but they don't work. They don't work. Some of you know that one of my favorite places uh, on the face of this earth is the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, a national wilderness area that's uh, pristinely preserved. You journey into this wilderness uh, by canoe. That's how you get around. And the deeper into this wilderness that you travel, the more untouched it is, the less people you're going to see and the better the campsites are going to be. Often the journey into this wilderness takes a couple of days, or ideally more, if you have the time for it. I was uh, reading a history of the Boundary Waters this year, and I found something totally fascinating to me. In the 1940s, there were resorts on some of the larger lakes right outside the Boundary Waters that would offer pontoon plane rides to your campsite of choice in the Boundary Waters. So wilderness seekers could go on a plane to their campsite. They would drop you off at whatever lake you wanted to for a small fee. Trips that would normally take three to four days by canoe now could take under an hour in a pontoon plane. But wilderness goers found themselves discontent with this. Sigurd Olson, the wonderful canoe theologian, wrote this. No engine yet devised can speed the workings of the spirit. If you have hurried to get into the wilderness physically, you still will not be there mentally or emotionally. Hurtling into the wilderness under engine power saves no time at all if, if it is the experience of the wilderness you are after. It may, in fact, waste time. And it was these wilderness seekers, the voyageurs themselves, who advocated for eliminating this shortcut. And by 1964, President Lyndon Johnson had signed the Wilderness Act into law, which eliminated motorboats, planes, and snowmobiles. Here's the thing. 
I would have a deep mistrust of shortcuts when I'm on trail in the Boundary Waters, if somebody told me there was one. You go with the land and the elements, and you focus on the journey. That's part of why you go. It's not just the destination. It's the journey to get there. So, too, it is with following Jesus. The point is to journey with him as close as possible. That's journeying with him. And shortcuts on a journey like that should be met with great suspicion. Maybe you have somewhere you want to get to in your spiritual life. You want to be growing. You want to be flourishing. You want to be prayerful. You want to be trusting. You want to be using your gifts. You want to be secure in Jesus. I want to tell you this morning there are no shortcuts to that. There's no one book you can read. There's no seminar you can go to. There's no conference to go to. There's no magic words that you can pray. There are no shortcuts to that. You have to journey with Jesus just like Mary did carrying her son in her womb as close as she could. Second thing we learned from this journey, as I've already stated, the journey was treacherous. Mary's journey with Jesus to Bethlehem wasn't easy, so it's important for you to know that your journey with Jesus is not meant to be easy either. So often that we think if, we, if we're choosing a life with Jesus, when we seek to journey with him in our, in our daily lives, that he's going to make the way straight and easy for us to do so. But the reality is, following Jesus, journeying with Jesus, is hard work. It's tough. His gospel demands a great deal from us. It demands that we choose a moral life, that we live with integrity. It demands that we shift our priorities in our lives. It demands that we die to ourselves daily. This makes for a narrow, treacherous road at times with challenging conditions that require discipline and commitment. If I can extend my wilderness analogy a little bit by canoe on trail, it's treacherous too. It can be super muddy on trail. You need to have bear spray. You, can, you, you have to watch out for slippery rocks so you don't roll an ankle or break a bone. The weather can be downright scary, freezing cold or scorching hot or stormy beyond description. Food can get really boring. But part of what I love about that treacherous journey is that I always feel a sense of accomplishment that I could not experience if it wasn't quite so hard and I wasn't so dirty and sore and smelly and tired at the end of it. Is this how we think about our faith journey with Jesus? That this difficult journey with Jesus is actually a joy? that the bruises and the sunburns and the exhaustion and the blistered feet are worth it in the end? Let's remember that the destination was not some grand finish line for Mary. It was a modest and, and, and humble finish line at Bethlehem. The point of the journey and the point of the destination were the same for her. It was that Jesus was with her and she got to be with Jesus. Can we see journeying? in our lives with Jesus as the best way to journey through our lives, even when things are difficult? Can we take that journey with joy? I think Mary took joy in her journey, and, and I think we should too. Last thing that Mary models for us. Third, the journey to Bethlehem wasn't an end. It was a beginning. In about 10 days from now, the... Christmas decorations here at church will be put away. They'll be put back in boxes. The animals will be long gone. Hopefully the smell of the animals will be long gone in 10 days too. 
The candles will be packed away. The manger is going to go back in the garage. Most likely, it's the same for you in your house. This series on Mary is going to finish early in January, and we'll be on to the next season of church life. And for us, we're going to continue to to focus on following Jesus, journeying with Jesus. But I fear that for some of us here, this might be the height of engagement that we have with Jesus in the church, with faith, until Easter and then maybe Advent again next year. Faith goes in a box, sort of like our ornaments, until next year. Well, if we're following the, the model of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that is simply not an option for us because Mary doesn't act as if she's done at Jesus' birth. Even after Jesus leaves her womb, she continues to journey with Jesus. She remains intimately close to Jesus as she goes through all of her life. She continues to journey. She journeys to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week if you show up. She journeys with Jesus to Egypt to ensure his safety. She journeys back to Nazareth with him from Egypt. She journeys to Jerusalem at least once a year throughout Jesus' childhood on pilgrimage. She follows him throughout his ministry from, from Mount Hermon in the north to the Sea of Galilee to Cana and eventually to Jerusalem to the cross to the empty tomb. She journeys with Jesus she never stops journeying with Jesus. There are never shortcuts. It remains treacherous, but she never stops. What about after Jesus' resurrection and ascension? Does Mary retire or something like that at that point? No. The journey with Jesus started on the way to Bethlehem, and it continues. The Bible doesn't tell us much about Mary after the resurrection, only that Jesus places her in John's care, the beloved disciples' care, and that she was with the apostles in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. That's all we know, but there are actually two traditions that live on about what happened with the rest of Mary's life that give us some options to understand where she went. One tradition has her making her home in Jerusalem with the apostles where she was revered as a spiritual matriarch and leader in the church. This tradition is held by some Catholics and, and most of our Orthodox brothers and sisters. And it tells us that Mary spent the rest of her days walking the way of the cross each and every day, retracing the footsteps of her son Jesus, and that people would join her on that journey and she would teach them about Jesus. That's one tradition. The second tradition about Mary is that she traveled with the beloved disciple John, who was caring for her, all the way to the city of Ephesus in Turkey. In this tradition, she lived in a house on a hill and had constant visitors who sat at her feet and listened to stories about her son Jesus. And there's some compelling archaeological finds that make this tradition possible. Whichever is true, or maybe it's another option, it seems that Mary never stopped traveling and journeying with Jesus. This was a lifelong exercise for Mary. So a final question for you this morning, in light of all this. What is your life about? That's a big question. What is your life about? Is it about work or pleasure or being good or having security? If Mary was asked that question, I think that her life was defined by journeying every day with Jesus by remaining intimately close to Jesus each and every day of her life. That's what her life was about. 
The journey to Bethlehem was not some one-off. It was a pattern for the rest of her life. She was the first person to journey with Jesus, and she encourages us to do so as well. There, there is a temptation to see this season, this Advent season, as a high point for us, and in some ways it is. But we have a tendency to see it as we, we, we get to the manger, we have a moment, and then we sort of go back to normal. And I want to say to you today that this is not living life at the fullest, my friends. Life to the fullest is a life of journeying with and following Jesus. So, in, so instead of a season, let this be a pattern. The real Advent, no shortcuts. The one with a, a narrow and sometimes treacherous path that's hard, but it's so, so good. The one that has an earthy, honest end that isn't really an end, it's just the beginning. It's a pattern. The best decision you could possibly make this day and every day is to say, Jesus, I want a real journey with you today. That's what my life is about. And would you make my life a pattern of journeying with you, of, of, of intimately journeying with you, keeping you as close as possible until my very last breath. That's a flourishing life. And it's offered to you as a gift today by the God who chose to journey with us so that we might choose each and every day to journey with him. Thanks be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who is and is to come. Amen. I want to give you a tool that I've used in this season as a way of responsive prayer today. It's a gift to you that I would invite you to use each and every day. It's called the breathing prayer, and it's quite simple. One line is when you inhale. The other line is when you exhale. You say this in the silence of your heart. And you breathe, you focus on your breathing, and you say this prayer until you're not thinking about anything else. For me, this has been a tool throughout my life that's been so useful. And I want to give you one in light of our text today and in light of Mary's life. I want to just give you a minute of silence to pray this prayer. As you breathe in, nice and long breath in, say, Jesus, my heart's desire and then you exhale, is to journey with you. Would you bow your heads? Focus on your, the breath that God gives to you, and pray this with me.
Jesus, it is our heart's desire today to journey with you, to hold you close in our lives, in every place that we go and in all things that we do, to depend on you, to be in communication with you, to trust in you, to make every decision that we have mindful that you are with us. We're thankful for Mary, for the model that she gives us of a faithful life journey with you. Would you give us the courage to choose the same? And may we be reminded that your presence with us is as close as our very breath. We pray these things in the one whom we desire to journey with each and every day until our very last breath. Amen.